We have been looking at the parables of Jesus this uh, in this series, and throughout the study, he has challenged the way that we think of ourselves and the way that we think of others. Even in his last life, uh, in his last week of life before his death and resurrection, he doesn't stop telling these parables. This morning, we're going to find a parable that he tells in the temple grounds, and even in the temple, he is telling heavenly stories with, or earthly stories, excuse me, with heavenly lessons. Stand with me as we read from the Gospel of Luke. We'll read Luke 29 through 19, and these are the ancient words. And so we pray that they change us because it is God's Word. It will, if we'll only let it. Luke 29 through 19, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I shall send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Father, help your word change us. May we hear it, may we follow it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Most of the parables uh, that Jesus teach, teach us a lesson through the events of the story. This one, the story, the lessons are really not as much in the events as they are in the individuals. Just like you break open stones to reveal the precious gems inside of them. We are going to get the gems of truth out of this parable by breaking open the actions of the characters to reveal their personalities and their character traits. He begins the story with the setup. The owner of a vineyard rents out, excuse me, I'm so sorry. The owner of the vineyard rents out this vineyard to some tenant farmers. Uh, and then he goes away on a long journey. Now, this was not uncommon then, and it's not even uncommon today. In fact, I know a farmer who today leases out land to plant crops on, and he gives a portion of that to the landowner. That's the landowner's payment. In that day, it was fairly common, and for some people, it was a, it was a good setup. The farmer didn't have to put out the capital to buy the land in the first place. Someone who was rich who had lots of land well, you just go to them and you borrow their land. When the crop comes in, hopefully it's a good crop. You're going to give a percentage or maybe it's a certain amount of the crop to the, the landowner as your payment. That's your lease payment. In good seasons, 
it was a great way to work. The farmer didn't take as much risk. I mean, there's always a risk planting crops, but uh, he, it wasn't as much of a risk because it wasn't his land. And in return, he would pretty well in a good crop. He'd get a, he'd get a good portion of the return for himself. For a bad year, <laughs> that's, that's a whole different story. In a bad year, it could work out really bad. It could be that the farmer ends up having to sell himself to pay off the debts that he can't pay because there was a, a there was a problem and crops didn't grow. Maybe maybe there was a famine. Maybe there was no rain, so the crops died in the summer heat. It could be a bad situation, but it was the best for many folks that day. In the story, we see these tenant farmers. And they are leasing this land. They're going to plant crops with the agreement that they entered into that they will give some of the crops back to the landowner as their payment. But the first thing we see, this first group of people that I want us to look at this morning, these tenant farmers, they're wicked tenants. How do I know they're wicked? Well, like I said, you look at the actions and it reveals the character. So let's look at the actions of the tenant farmers. When the time came, Verse 12, verse 10, excuse me. He sent a servant to the tenants so that they give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The owner is just collecting what's his. He's not looking to swindle the tenants. He's merely looking for the payoff of his investment. But what do they do? Well, this first servant, they beat and they sent him away. The idea is that he was whipped and chased out. So what happens next? Well, another servant comes, verse 11. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Not only is he whipped, not only is he sent away just like the first guy, but in the interim, they embarrass him. They dishonor him. They treat him shamefully. Do you notice how it's a little bit worse with the second than it was with the first? Keep going. What happens in verse 12? Well, and he sent yet a third. Same story, new verse, except this one's even worse. This one, also they wounded. The idea here isn't just a whipping. The idea here is, well, we have an English word that comes from this Greek word. It's the word traumatize. They traumatized him. They beat him so badly that he was severely wounded. He needed medical attention just because he's trying to get what the owner sent him to get what the owner should be getting. Now, how do I know these tenant farmers are wicked? By their actions. They're showing their wickedness. Time after time after time, servant after servant after servant, they keep sending him away. And every time it gets worse, every time it's more violent. This, oh, by the way, cast out, that's the same word used of Jesus kicking demons out of possessed people. Yeah, it's that word. This isn't just a send them off. This isn't a get out of here. You're not welcome here. This is a bodyguard picking you up and throwing you out. That, that kind of picture. Every time they're getting worse and worse and worse. And their callousness doesn't end with the servants. After these servants, the owner decides, all right, I'll send my son. Look at verse 14, how they treat him. But when they saw him, the implication is they see him coming. He's on the way. He's, he's walking the road. They see him and they start to plan among themselves. This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So, verse 15, that's what they do. 
They threw him out. Same word as cast out. They threw him out and they killed him. You see, every time they are confronted with the error of their ways, every time they are confronted with their wrongness, every time they are being confronted for the owner to get what is rightfully his, they become more recalcitrant in their sin, more violent in their means. They have no interest in doing the right thing. These aren't people that are trying to do right. These, they're only interested in themselves. And now they're so far, they come so far in only looking after their own interests that they are willing to kill a man to prevent having to send some crops away. I want you to hear me carefully. That's us. Oh, you might say, oh, that's not me. I'd never do a thing like that. I'd never do that. I mean, you know, I make mistakes, but I, I'm, I'm not going to kill a guy. Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Do you hear that? There is no one who does good. We are all the wicked tenants. Every single one of us. You and me. That's us. We consistently look out for only ourselves. And we don't care about doing what's right. Casey Ryle wrote, Few of us, it may be feared, have the least conception of the strength and virulence of the spiritual disease with which we are born. Few entirely realize that the carnal mind is enmity against God and that unconverted human nature, if it had the power, would cast its maker down from its throne. The behavior of the husbandmen before us, whether we may please to think, is only a picture of what every natural man would do to God if only he could. That's the problem of the sinful nature. Man will argue up and down about his freedom of will. He will insist upon his essential goodness, concocting in his mind a universe in which his wrong actions are not wrong per se, but are justified and excused with the most heinous of reasonings. He will cheat his way to victory and claim it legitimate while decrying the same faults in his opponent. He will blaspheme God and demand that God acquiesce to his truth. Just as the coroner of a bombing case must undertake considerable effort to piece together his victim, let him known identify him, so one must engage in great effort to piece together the image of God so charred, so disfigured, so blown up, by our sinfulness. Ironside writes, men are not lost because they do not know better. They're lost because they sin against the light which God gives them. We are the wicked tenants and our wickedness is a heavy burden because it forces us to do all manner of evil. Interesting, there's a contrast in the story. Contrasting with the wicked tenants is there are the faithful servants so in each one of those verses that we read, the owner sends a servant and then they mistreat the servant. And then he sends another servant and he mistreats that servant. And, and, and then he sends another servant and they mistreat that servant. Finally, he ends up sending his son. But, but what I want you to notice about the servants, it isn't so much declared as you can just tell by reading the story. These are faithful people. They have a mission to get what belongs to their master and they do it. Well, at least they try. Show of hands. What if you were the next servant in line? 
How many are volunteering for this job? No. No, no, no. Not me. I, I would, I, it would take a lot of love and faithfulness for me to serve in that capacity. It'd be like applying to be a tr- crash test dummy. <laughs> Nothing but trouble lies ahead. But they do obey. Each one of them willingly engages in the work. Now, we don't, we don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe the third one was like, come on, boss. <laughs> Can we talk about this? But he goes. They know the risk, but he goes anyway. Each one of them. If you're looking for a parallel with real life, you might look at the Old Testament prophets as great examples. These are men, some of them prophets, some of them judges. Priests and kings sometimes even filled this role. In the New Testament, you might think of them as the apostles or the first deacons. It's interesting. Stephen becomes a deacon in Acts 6. In Acts 7, he's killed. I wonder, I wonder if those two might be related. Him serving God in that kind of capacity ended up leading to the opportunity to witness in front of a very tough audience who end up stoning him to death. But yet he does anyway. They have one specific task, proclaim God's words to others. They call people to repent of their sins, to restore justice, to renew their commitment to God. They stood in the gap. They faced ridicule, persecution, and sometimes even death. Even with the efforts of the faithful servants, the wicked tenants are still hardened in their wickedness. Sound familiar? But the owner's not willing to give up. He has another to send, and that's his beloved son. When the servants are mistreated, the owner is left with a choice. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. It's only one thing we know about the son, that word beloved. Where have I heard someone else being called a beloved son? Oh yeah, (laughs) Jesus is called my beloved son. Not once, but twice. At the the, uh, baptism, at his baptism, John the Baptist baptizes him and he comes up and the dove, the, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, it's not a dove, but like a dove descends on him and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's Elijah and there's Moses and Jesus and Peter's all excited and he's like, Jesus, we got to build some tents. Man, we got to celebrate this. And then, and then a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Smoke clears and they only see Jesus. We have this beloved son. Yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of ruined that part, right? That, that hidden part of who the son is. We know who the son is. It's the son. We already know what's going to happen. They're going to kill him. They're not going to respect him, even though the owner uh, wants them to. They don't grant that the son has any authority. In fact, uh, they not only deny his authority, they deny the authority of the one who has sent the son. That sound familiar? Yeah. They know who he is, but they refuse to acknowledge him. If you've read much Bible, you know it's pointing to Jesus. Jesus, God's Son, was sent to sinful humanity to offer us the opportunity to make things right with God. We are indebted to our Creator. But as sinful men, we refuse to grant God the worship, the honor, the glory that's due Him. Jesus comes after so many prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet, to collect the debt, but sinful people crucified Him. Nothing, Ironside says, brings out the corruption an incurable evil of the heart of sinful man like the presence of Jesus. It's amazing. When Jesus shows up, everything is made bare. 
the faithful servants of God, the prophets, shone a flashlight on the sinfulness of man. Now Jesus is coming with the fullness of God's iridescent glory, and he's showing every slight shade of sin. When these people were listening to Jesus, they couldn't believe it's true. The ESV puts it, surely not. Your version might have something like, it will not happen. Can't be true. No way. Jesus says, way. They object to the possibility that the son could be rejected and the farmers punished, but Jesus, Jesus shows us his role. Verse 17, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Go back, oh, about 700 years, and uh, you'll see the building of the temple. Solomon is building a temple to God. David wanted to build it. God said, no way. You can't build it. Your son's going to build it. So David gets all the supplies ready. And so as soon as Solomon becomes king, he, he starts to build this temple. And in the building of the temple, they did not let any of the noisy work happen on site. All of the rocks had to, all the stones had to be cut in the quarry and then delivered to the site. All of the wood would be cut, pre-cut, and then delivered, and then it would just be pieced together. And so there, there wasn't all of the chiseling of stone and the, the sawing of wood. You didn't hear those noises at the Temple Mount. As they're doing this, early on in the process, they're sending stones to start the work, and they send this one stone that just doesn't, it's completely different from all the rest. It doesn't fit. And they're wondering, what should we do to this? So they send it back to the quarry, and they say, this, this stone doesn't fit anywhere. You sent us the wrong stone. So it said that someone took it and pushed it off the side of a hill or a mountain, uh, and it rolled all the way down. And years later, as they're finishing the temple, they're getting ready to put on the last stone. And if you've ever built like an arch or something like that, you, you know that there's always a stone in the center that kind of pieces it all together and and in a building there there's 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 always one stone a cornerstone or capstone or something like that 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 really secures the building and it's always odd shaped so they said send us the cornerstone and the quarry sent word back we already have we sent it to you a long time ago see the stone that the builders rejected was the cornerstone misshaped they got it they put it on and it fit perfectly they just didn't know what it was jesus says i am the cornerstone he the cornerstone of faith is rejected by many some people stumble over him he gets in their way he's a stumbling block some people the stone falls on and they crush they're crushed by it you see rather than trusting in him they're rejecting him and no one who rejects him will be safe I've saved the fourth character for last, though I could have spoken of him first, and that is the merciful owner. You might wonder why I've talked about everybody else first. The owner is the first character mentioned. In fact, um, he's basically the last character mentioned too, isn't he? <laughs> Everything's revolving around this owner. And the character of the owner is one of mercy. In fact, not just mercy, enduring mercy. He sends servant 
after servant after servant, and even sends his own son, his beloved son, his cherished son, to get what really belongs to him in the first place. He didn't have to do all this. He could have just mow on lobbed the thing. He could have just came and took it. But he didn't. He gave them chance after chance after chance after chance to do the right thing. He didn't act bitterly or harshly until their final rejection. And then he was left with no other choice. We know who the merciful owner is, don't we? J.C. Ryle. The last day will unfold to our wondering eyes a long list of unacknowledged kindnesses of which while we lived, we took no notice. Mercy, we shall find, was indeed God's darling attribute. Merciful God indeed. And he's still offering mercy today. He's still offering the chance for forgiveness, for wicked sinners to repent and trust him. Will you? Father, I pray that as we enter this time of invitation, that we would heed your call. God, help us repent of our sin. Help us stop being the wicked tenants Let's give you what you deserve. And that starts with us. It starts with our hearts, our lives. Those that have, I pray that you would make us more and more obedient. Help us to be faithful servants. Help us to be the ones willing to declare, even at risk to ourselves, even at risk to our health, our well-being, even at risk to our lives if necessary. Merciful God, remind us of your mercy and help us live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.